Good morning again, Coastal Church. Grab a Bible and turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5 is where we'll spend the majority of our time in God's Word this morning. And as you're turning there, I just want to put a couple things before you. Uh, Number one, give you a little bit of a heads up of where we're going in November. We will be holding our first family worship service in November which means there will be a Sunday, I think it's the 19th, where we will celebrate the Lord's Supper for the first time as a church family, where we'll do family dedications for the first time as a church family, and we will observe baptisms. So I think we have a slide for it. Caleb, if you want to put that up there, brother, we have a baptism class coming up on October 22nd. We're going to meet in the cafeteria right down the hall where the kids meet. October 22nd, we will provide some pizza and some snacks, water. If you have not been baptized and you are a follower of Jesus, let me just put it out there. You don't need to wait to be called or feel called to be baptized. You are commanded to be baptized. Matthew chapter 28, Jesus tells us to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2 and 3 talk about the importance of baptism. So, We would love to celebrate baptism with you. If you've not been baptized, would like to learn more about baptism or just have questions, sign up online, gocoastal.org slash Williamsburg. You can attend the class and learn more about baptism. Uh, All right, we'll get rolling here in a second. I just want to share this though. On a personal note, I wanted to thank you, church. You guys have shown me uh, as your pastor a ton of grace and patience. Thank you for giving me a couple weeks off of the pulpit. The last couple weeks we celebrated the birth of our third child, Charlie, on September 21st, just a couple weeks ago. And if you have three kids, you know what that means. We went, whoa, sorry guys, we went two weeks ago from playing man-to-man to zone defense. Uh, raise your hand if you have over three, three or more kids. Yes, you know there's a different strategy involved. And my role as a dad of three now has become really crowd control with the older two. And so we have two older ones, Piper, she is five, Calvin, he is two and a half. And over the last two weeks, as I've, I've gotten some extra time at home, we've been doing a lot of reading. One book that we read with Piper, that I read to Piper, was C.S. Lewis's Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the first installment of the Chronicles of Narnia. Again, Christian show of hands. Who's read C.S. Lewis's Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? All right. Spoiler alert, it's been out for like 70 years, so I don't feel too bad, but you're all Edmund. Like, we're all Edmund. And I've been working through that with Piper. She wants to be Lucy, right? This story is about four Peverly children who go into Narnia, overthrow the White Witch with the help of Aslan, the Christ figure king. She wants to be Lucy. She doesn't want to be Edmund, the one who betrays the king, the one who's died for, but she is. Let me just say, it's not fun being a pastor's kid sometimes. Um, But we've been walking through this book, and I wanted to share really one thing that I've learned this time through Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's that the relationship that the kids have with Aslan, this lion, transforms everything about them. Here's what I mean. When they first go through the wardrobe into Narnia, they are timid and they're afraid and they're scared of the white witch. They don't know what they're doing in this snow-covered country. They're worried. They're not bold or brave at all. They just want to go home. But when they meet Aslan, And they build this relationship with this lion who's described not as safe, but as good, fearsome, worthy of awe and reverence and respect. You see that this relationship that they have with Aslan begins to change them almost from the inside out to the point that at the end of the book, the four kids are brave and bold and they lead and love decisively. 
It's all because they have this right relationship with Aslan. And so here's what I learned walking through Piper with Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is that when we have a right relationship with the king, when you have a right vertical relationship, it affects everything around you. And so this is where I want us to establish, really even before we dive into Nehemiah 5 this morning, when our relationship with God, when our vertical relationship is in a good place, when we look at God rightly with fear and trembling, when we worship him with reverence and awe, when we put our lives on the altar and say, God, you can have all of me, every part of me, I want to obey you, then that vertical relationship has an impact on our horizontal relationships. And on the other hand, the opposite is just as true. When our relationship with God is off, if there is something that we're, we're hiding from God, something that we're holding back from God, if we don't view God rightly or we're not obeying God completely, then what happens, church? Our relationships with each other, our horizontal relationships are out of line. They're out of whack. We're gonna see this in Nehemiah 5. In Nehemiah chapter 5, something was critically wrong with the vertical relationships that the Israelites had with God. And because of that, because their vertical relationships were off with God, their horizontal relationships were a mess. And so here's what I wanna do. I'm gonna read Nehemiah 5. Let's read Nehemiah 5 verses 1 through 13 together. And then I'll pray and we'll walk through some of this as a church. This is the word of the Lord. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. <laughs> so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers and our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words and I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. And they were silent and could not find a word to say. Verse nine. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day, their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. And they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And they called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. And I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and his labor who does not keep this promise. So may she be shaken out and emptied. And the assembly said, amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Let's pray. Excuse me. Father, we come to you with fear and trembling. 
That's my prayer this morning, is that you would evoke in us a right fear of the Lord, a right vertical relationship with you so that our horizontal relationships would be made right. So God, help me to preach clearly with effectiveness. We know your word does not return void. It's alive and active. And so Father, I pray now for the preached word. We pray Psalm 119, open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your law. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. All right, here's what's going on. Let me refresh our minds, our memories, a little context in Nehemiah. It's been a couple of weeks since we've done this. Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king of Persia. And in this story, he's gone back from Susa the citadel to Jerusalem, the city of David, with a return to exiles. The exiles were not in Babylon anymore. They're back in Jerusalem. And he's back in Jerusalem to rebuild the city walls. In chapter one, the temple had already been rebuilt. Nehemiah gets this news though, that the people of God and the walls of Jerusalem are in disarray. It breaks his heart. He's grieved over this news. So he prays in chapter one. In chapter two, he begins the journey to Jerusalem. He starts the work. In chapter three, he gets everyone involved. We saw last week, Pastor Andrew shared in chapter four, some external opposition rose up to the work from a couple guys named Tobiah and Sanbalat. And in chapter four, they pray and set a guard. We see that in chapter four, verse nine, and they press on. And at the end of chapter four, the work on the wall had resumed. And things were going really, really well. And this brings us to our text today, where we see immediately another problem crops up. Look at me at verse one. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. So this is a problem. This word outcry is the same one used in Genesis chapter 18, when God hears the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah. It's the same word that we see in Exodus chapter three, when the Israelites are crying out against their unjust taskmasters in Egypt. It's the kind of word that has no business in the rebuilding of Jerusalem, but the people are crying out. And this time, the outcry has nothing to do with evil outsiders from external opposition. The outcry is coming from within the family. It's coming from within the people of And why is this happening? Chapter five tells us the wealthy nobles of Jerusalem were oppressing the vulnerable. They were taking advantage financially of the poorest people of the land. The returned exiles, the people who had come back to Jerusalem from Babylon were mortgaging their fields, their vineyards, everything they had, even their sons and daughters to have enough money to pay their taxes to the king and have enough food to eat. Now, if we really think about this church, this is, heartbreaking. Like this is a sad turn of events. Remember where we are in the history of the Old Testament. God's people are now back in the promised land. Things are supposed to be going really well. They wanted to be the people that would usher in the kingdom of God. And now all of a sudden they are oppressing and sinning against their own people. And opposition from the outside, like we saw last week in chapter four from Tobiah and Sambalot is one thing, But what we see this morning is opposition from the inside. And that's different. Thanks, Devin. It's different. This is number one in your notes. We see a threat here worse than external opposition, internal opposition. This is a far greater problem. In Nehemiah 5, the people of God themselves were opposing the work of God. 
And they do this in two primary ways. Letter A, the wealthy were charging interest, charging interest on the loans that they had given to the poor. We see this in verse seven. Nehemiah says to the nobles, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. The second way they were oppressing the poor, letter B, the wealthy were enslaving their own people. This is what happens in verse five. Look at verse five. The complaint of the people was that now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their flesh, yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. So they're doing two things. They're charging interest and they're enslaving their own people, forcing their own people to become slaves in order that they might have enough money to pay their own taxes and to buy food for their families. Now, in our context, in the 21st century in America, these seem like two different offenses. Like for us, charging interest and forcing people into slavery seem like two different levels of sin. But there's a reason, a really particular reason, why Nehemiah was so heated, so angry with the nobles for doing these two things. Remember, the returned exiles were supposed to be this society that was built on the law of God. They were rebuilding the kingdom. They wanted to follow God's law, but they don't do that. In Leviticus chapter 25, we see in the law how God's people should treat the poorest people of the land. I'll put Leviticus 25 up on the screen. I'm going to read this passage. And as I do, I want you to be a detective. Look and see in Leviticus 25 if you can find the two offenses that the people commit here in Nehemiah. This is Leviticus. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner. He shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. Verse 39, if your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. We see this? What does Moses command the people not to do? Two things, don't charge interest. Don't sell your own people into slavery. This is why Nehemiah is livid here in chapter five. The people of God are directly disobeying the God that they claim to worship. And because of this church, their vertical relationship, their standing with God is a mess. And therefore their standing with each other is suffering. Now, I want to take a step back for a minute because this passage and really this sermon, this is not a money sermon. It's not designed to be a money sermon. I don't think that our takeaway this morning is as simple as don't be like the people. There's nuance here. For example, in chapter five, chapter five is not a blanket ban on Christians charging interest. That's not the problem that's happening in chapter five. Rather, This word is arguing against a heart posture that seeks financial gain at the expense of someone else's suffering. And ultimately, this is the problem with the internal opposition we see in Nehemiah 5. Even though the walls in Jerusalem are almost fully rebuilt at this point in chapter 5, the heart posture of the people is still in ruins. And the rest of this passage is going to show us exactly why. So look with me at verse 9. Nehemiah, verse 9, is rebuking the nobles for their sin, and he says this. 
the thing you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? If you have a pen or high letter and you write your Bible, underline verse 9. Ought you not to walk in the fear of God? In other words, some translations put it this way. Shouldn't you fear God? Here's what's happening. Nehemiah is connecting their direct disobedience to the word of God with the fact that the people do not fear God. And that's a problem. The people don't fear God. And because of that, they're not afraid to break God's law. The people don't fear God. And because of that, they have no heartache over oppressing each other. This is number two in your notes. The people did not fear the Lord. They did not fear the Lord. See, I want us to get this. This selfishness with their finances is a symptom of a bigger issue. This people, the Israelites, the people of the hope for restoration, they don't fear God. If they did, they wouldn't break the commands that we saw in Leviticus 25. Look back at Leviticus 25, 36 for a second. Let me read it again. Take no interest for him or profit, but what, church? Fear your God. Fear your God. That's the motivation given. And this is what Nehemiah is going after, this lack of fear. And this is the problem in chapter 5. This brings it home for us. When there's no fear of God, when there's no awe of his sovereignty, no respect of his power, no grasp of his will and the good that God works for his covenant people, then there's no basis for his people to truly love others. If we don't fear God, then slowly but surely, the compassion we have for each other will fade away. If we don't fear God, the good works, they might be zealous and exciting at first, but if we don't fear God, they will fade. And this is what we need to see. And it goes back to the transformation of the four kids in Narnia when they met Aslan. How we treat other people, our horizontal relationships are always determined by what we first think about God. We have to view him rightly. And so let me bring this home to us in Williamsburg for a minute. If we as individual Christians aren't walking in the fear of the Lord, we don't see God for all that he is in holiness and power, then our horizontal relationships as a New Testament church will be affected. And we'll see what happens in Nehemiah 5. We will see internal opposition to the work that God is doing with and through our church. So what does this mean? It means that our walks with God, your walk with God, like whether it's going really, really well right now or whether it's struggling, has a direct impact on the people around you. Everyone look to the person on your left, like right now, look to the person on your left and then look to the person on your right. I want you to think about this. Your walk with Christ, your individual relationship with Jesus impacts both people that you just looked at. We take it one step further. Our own personal fear of the Lord is directly correlated with how God will use us as a church to reach people with the gospel in this city. Your personal relationship with Jesus matters. The things you do for Jesus that no one else sees, those make a difference in how God is going to use our church coastal. So think about that. If you set your alarm early every morning to go down before the kids are awake so you can study and meditate over the riches of God's word and no one sees that but you and the Lord, God's gonna use that time 
to bless and grow and strengthen this local church. Do you have a discipline of fasting because you love lost people and you want more and more people to come to know Jesus and no one knows about that. God's gonna use that secret discipline to help strengthen his local church. That time in the prayer closet that no one else sees, that time impacts the people on your left and on your right. God uses what we do for him to work through us. And if that's true, then the opposite is true too. Listen, that sin that you think no one knows about directly impacts the person on your left and directly impacts the person on your right. That secret sin that you think just affects you has a direct correlation with how God will use and work through this local church. Our obedience in the vertical will always affect the horizontal. Now, I want us to see this because believe it or not, this is a theme that we see all over the scriptures. And so I'm gonna give us two examples. I'm gonna give us an example from the Old Testament and I'll give us an example from the New Testament that'll bring it home for us today in Williamsburg. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Joshua chapter seven. I want us to really feel this process, feel this idea that our behavior, our vertical, how we look at God, how we serve God, how we obey God has a very real impact on the people around us. So Joshua chapter seven, we're gonna see a story of an Israelite named Achan. Now, let me give us some quick context. In the book of Joshua, Joshua has succeeded Moses in the leadership of Israel. Moses led the people out of slavery in Egypt, led them for 40 years in the wilderness as they were in the desert. Now, Moses dies, passes on the reign of leadership to Joshua. And Joshua very quickly in the book leads the people over the Jordan River. God parts the water again for them to walk through on dry land. And they very quickly start taking the land that was promised to their forefather, Abraham. We know Joshua chapter six, the story of Jericho, the walls of Jericho come crashing down. And that sends this signal to every city state in the promised land that the God of Israel is on the move. That nothing is going to stop Israel and nothing is going to stop their God. He is a miracle working God. Now, right before the Israelites took Jericho, God gave them a word, a command. He said, after you take the city, don't touch any of the devoted things in Jericho. They're gonna have a lot of silver and a lot of gold, a lot of things they would use for idol worship. Don't touch anything. So Jericho is fallen. Israel has all the momentum in the world. And here comes Joshua chapter seven. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. So here's what happened. God says, don't touch the devoted things. What does Achan do in verse one? He sees the devoted things in Jericho. The Bible says that he sees them, he covets them, and he takes them. Some silver and a cloak, items that would have been used in idol worship. Now, Achan goes home, puts this stuff under his tent, and thinks that that's it. But what happens to Israel? In the rest of Joshua chapter seven, we see, really, things take a turn for the worst for the army. After they take Jericho, they're looking at this small city-state called Ai. And Ai is not as big as Jericho, so Joshua doesn't send the whole army out. He just sends a small little group to go take Ai again. They have the miracle-working God of the universe behind them. But what happens at Ai? They go and they think that they're going to overthrow Ai in an afternoon. 
But the Bible tells us that Ai destroys the small Israelite army. 36 men are killed. The men run back to Joshua, the ones who survived. And Israel and Joshua fall on their face before the Lord. Like, God, what's happened? We were supposed to be your people. You promised us this land. Remember when you parted the Red Sea? Remember when you parted the Jordan River? Everything was so good. You just knocked down the walls when we shouted. Now Ai destroyed our tiny little army. They're on their faces weeping before the Lord. And in Joshua 7, God says to them, get up. There is sin in the camp. And so Joshua goes through this process of figuring out what's happened and leads him to Achan. And Achan confesses his sin, brings out the devoted things that he's taken. The Bible tells us in Joshua 7 that Achan and his entire family are executed before the Lord. Now listen, as an American, we live in this individualistic culture, right? I read Joshua 7 and I think, okay, Achan disobeyed the word of the Lord. Achan deserves some consequences. Like it was a direct command. Achan should probably be punished, right? But I would just leave it at Achan because Achan is the one who sinned. But look at the ripple effect that the sin of Achan had on the people of God because Achan saw, coveted, and took. 36 men of the army were killed because Achan saw, coveted, and took. His entire family was executed before the Lord. So listen, church, your secret sin can not only ruin your life, it can ruin your families. Your secret sin can not only ruin your families, it can ruin your small groups. Your secret sin, the sin that you think only affects you, the sin that you think doesn't hurt anyone, can bring down a church, can bring down a local church. We have to be a people who recognize that our own fear of the Lord matters. That what we do in the darkness will one day be brought to the light and it matters. We see in Joshua 7 that Achan didn't fear the Lord. If he did fear the Lord, he wouldn't have broken the command as we see earlier in Joshua 5 and 6. He valued some devoted things over being a part of the people of God. And because of that, great fear spreads throughout the people and God purifies his people. So that's just the Old Testament. This happens over and over again in the Bible. Again, I want us to see this theme. The vertical always affects the horizontal. Now flip with me to Acts chapter five. We'll see one more example and then I'll give us two practical pieces of application for us as a church. I'm choosing the book of Acts because I want us to see this idea, Coastal, of fearing the Lord and having our own secret sin or our own secret obedience even affect others around us is not just an Old Testament concept. We see it in the New Testament church as well. In Acts chapter five, the early church is exploding in Jerusalem. People are being saved every day. God is building up his church, working miracles through the apostles. The believers are living in peace and unity. People are selling their property to give it to the church so that poor people could eat and so that the church would continue to be built up. Things were going incredibly well at the end of Acts chapter four. But then in chapter five, we learn about a couple named Ananias and Sapphira who sell a piece of property to give it to the church. And I'll read the story. You'll see things will go really quickly south. Acts chapter five, verses one through 11. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property with his wife's knowledge, 
he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land while it remained unsold? Did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. The great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose up, wrapped him up, and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and carried her out and buried her beside her husband. A great fear came upon the whole church and all who heard of these things. Coastal, you see what's happening? Like Ananias and Sapphira didn't fear the Lord. They saw a portion of a profit from a home sale as more valuable to them than building up the kingdom of God. And so they lied. And because of their sin, God brought down judgment. And what does this lead to in the church? Verse 11, great fear came upon the whole church. This shows us that fearing God, a legitimate fear of him isn't just an Old Testament concept, but a marker and a goal for us today. And I hope we're starting to see a theme here, a lack of fear of the Lord has a potential to impact every aspect of our lives. And I know I said that this wasn't a money servant, and I meant that, but I want to see a common thread here. Nehemiah chapter five, the people didn't fear the Lord and the rich got richer. They charged interest, they enslaved their own people. In Joshua seven, what does Achan do? He looks at material possessions, some silver, some gold, some devoted things, and his heart posture was revealed. He coveted possessions. In Acts chapter five, Ananias and Sapphira, they looked at this money and they valued it so much that they decided to keep it for themselves and to lie to cover up their own selfishness. Here's what this teaches us today. One of the best ways to assess our own personal fear of the Lord is to look at how we handle our possession, is to look at how we handle our money. Like, are we a people that are primarily investing in the things of God or the things of this world? Like, someone who rightly fears the Lord recognizes that everything that God has given to us, everything we have, is ultimately God's. A right fear of the Lord for the Christian leads to radical generosity, open-handedness with everything we have because we know this world is not our home and our true home awaits us in heaven. But on the other hand, someone who doesn't fear the Lord will look to cut corners. Someone who doesn't fear the Lord will look to hide and to hoard. Why is that? Because someone who has no fear of the Lord, church, lives as though this life is all there is. And if someone lives as though this life is all there is, and that means that everything in this life is dependent on us and not God, which honestly is a different kind of fear. We see this in Nehemiah. The nobles were willing to sin and oppress because they were afraid, not of God, but afraid of losing their lifestyles. 
In Joshua chapter 7 with Achan, he was afraid of missing out on the devoted things. He didn't find being a part of the kingdom of God as valuable, and he feared missing out. And here in Acts, in Ananias and Sapphira, Ananias and Sapphira keep back some of this money almost as if they needed a safety net because they didn't trust God to provide for them. We have to understand this. We all, every single person in this room, we all fear something. We'll look at more of this next week. Some of us battle the fear of man and that fear can be debilitating. Like we're consumed by what other people think of us. Some of us fear suffering. Some of us fear the future. Like the idea of a future where we have no control. What are we going to do if this or that happens? Some of us fear the unknown. Some of us fear heartbreak. Some of us fear failure. And listen, these are real things and real concerns, but our word today is clear. We are created as individuals and as a church to fear God, trusting that he is awesome, powerful, and good and in control of all circumstances in our lives. So much so that when we look at God in reverent fear, we have nothing else to be afraid of. Like this is a pretty important for us, concept for us to understand. When we fear God, Coastal, nothing else scares us. And when we get that right, the church becomes this unstoppable force. We see this in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 9, here's what's happened since Ananias and Sapphira. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. I'm going to give us two takeaways for us as a church today, and then we'll close. Number one, walk in the fear of the Lord. Number one, walk in the fear of the Lord. We have to be a people that fear the Lord. This is all over the Bible. Proverbs chapter nine, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Proverbs 14, the fear of the Lord, one has a strong confidence. His children will have a refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Fear of the Lord is good for us as New Testament Christians. It's good for our marriages. It's good for our parenting. Good for our workplaces. Good for our church. It keeps us in step with what we see in the scriptures. All over the scriptures, we see Ezra and Isaiah falling in fear before the Lord. Even the disciples, when they recognized who Jesus was, the Bible says they were afraid of him. This fear is motivating for us. It should lead us to fear our own ability to sin. It should motivate us to confess secret sin, to bring out of darkness into the light what might be affecting others. And finally, this reverent fear of the Lord has a direct impact on how we treat the people of God. We don't want Nehemiah 5, where a lack of Fear led to oppression and selfishness. We want Acts 9, where the church feared God, moved in unity, and multiplied greatly. So ask yourself the question this morning, who or what do I fear? Second takeaway from Acts 9 for the church, live in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Live in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. I love this one. Let me read Acts 9 31 again, because we need to see how both of these takeaways for the church work together. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the church multiplied. Two things, fear of the Lord on one hand, 
the comfort of the Holy Spirit on the other. We've seen we're designed to multiply and fear the Lord. It's the opposite of what we see in Nehemiah 5. But here's the beautiful thing, Coastal, and here's where I want to leave us this morning. Our fear of God is intended to be married to the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And here's what the Holy Spirit does for us as believers. Here's what he does for us. The Holy Spirit of God living inside of us creates a fear that isn't a fear of punishment, but rather an awe of power. And so we fear him, and rightly so, because he's holy and just and powerful. God cannot tolerate sin, but at the same time, we're also comforted by him. Because God alone has made a way for us to be freed from the penalty of our sin. Think back again to the Peverly children with Aslan. They don't fear Aslan because they're afraid of being punished by him. They fear him because they're in awe of his power. And this is the case for us. The fearsome God of the universe has made a way for us as sinful people to go from fearing punishment from the judge to standing in awe of the Father. Let me show you how this is accomplished. Think back with me to Nehemiah 5. The nobles of Jerusalem, they weren't caring for their poor brothers. This would have required genuine and real sacrifice on their part. But when God looked at us, and when God looked at you, Christian, he did the absolute opposite of what we see in Nehemiah 5. He sacrificed everything. And he sent his son, Jesus, so that we wouldn't be oppressed, church, but so that we would be freed. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 puts it this way, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. I mean, do you see how incredible this is? Like Christ became poor so that we might become rich. Christ died for our sins so that we wouldn't have to die for our sin. He took the punishment that we deserved. And because of Christ, our fear of God takes on a whole new dimension. It goes from fearing punishment to being in awe of the Father. It motivates us. It cleanses us so that by walking in the fear of the Lord, and of the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the church is multiplied. All right. I'm going to invite the band back up. We're going to close here in a second. This is my prayer for us. This has been my prayer for us this week. Acts 9.31, that we would be a church here in Williamsburg that recognizes rightly that for us to multiply in a way that honors the Lord, that we would fear him with reverence and awe, and we would be comforted by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I want us to get this concept. And so imagine it this way. Imagine you are hiking a mountain and not a mountain like in the Shenandoah or Blue Ridge, like one of the, the 14ers in Colorado or a Mount Everest type mountain in Nepal, like a really, really, really high mountain. So much so that when you're on the top of the mountain, you are above everything. You're looking down now at the clouds. You're looking down at the grandeur and splendor of the earth. You're above everything. It's a pretty cool place to be. If you've been there, you can attest to it. It's amazing, incredible. But then imagine a mile or so, a couple of miles in the distance, you start to see storm clouds. And you know, because in this example, you're a pretty experienced hiker, you know that if you see storm clouds and you're on top of a mountain, if that storm moves and hits you, you are in trouble, like real legitimate trouble. And all of a sudden, the storm clouds start to intensify. Not only do they intensify, but they start moving towards you where you are on top of this 14,000 foot mountain. It's a scary moment because you realize 
then if you don't have cover, if you don't have refuge, if you don't have some kind of safety net for the storm, then if that storm hits you and you're on the top of that mountain, then you could die. Like you could be hit by lightning, you could be swept off the mountain. And this kind of storm, the one that intensifies and builds and builds and builds, could literally kill you if you don't find somewhere safe to go. And you're on top of this mountain and you realize it's coming at you and you have no time to get to the bottom of the mountain. So you do what everyone would do, you just start walking. You start walking and running down the side of the mountain, but you know at the rate of the speed of the storm, you're not getting to the bottom of the mountain before it hits the mountain. You're on top of this 14,000 foot mountain, totally exposed. And you recognize in that moment that the only way you're gonna survive is if you find a refuge. And so maybe a minute, 30 seconds before the storm hits the mountain, where you are totally exposed, you find a crack in the rock. And thanking God, you slip into the crack in the rock. Here's what happens. The storm, which was once terrifying, deadly to you, crashes over this mountain. And in that moment, you go from fearing the deadliness of the storm to being in awe of the power of God. Why? Because you found a refuge. And so here's the takeaway for us this morning. Our refuge is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Like our refuge is Jesus. He is the miracle cave in the mountain that saves us from the wrath and storm of God. But listen, not everyone in this room has availed himself of that refuge. We talk about fear of the Lord. It's real important for Christians and for the church to fear the Lord. We fear him rightly as father. We look at him with reverence and awe. But listen, if you are in here this morning, then you wouldn't yet call yourself a Christian. Then you're still on the mountain. You're still under the weight and the penalty and the punishment of your sin. And unless you repent of your sin and avail yourself of the refuge that is Christ, then you'll face the consequences of your sins. There are really just two steps for us. One, if you are a follower of Jesus at Coastal Church this morning, praise God for the refuge that is Christ. We praise him for the refuge that is Christ because he transforms our fear. He puts his spirit in us so that we don't fear punishment. We fear God in reverence and awe. And if you're not in Christ, then with all of my heart, I urge you, repent of your sin. Believe in the message of the gospel that Jesus is God, that he died on the cross for your sin, and he bodily rose from the grave, and receive Christ and find refuge. Let's stand. I'm going to pray for us. And then we'll go out singing and really praising. I love this Trinitarian chorus that we sing in this song. So let's pray. Father, we praise you for providing us with a refuge. God, I'm grateful for texts like Nehemiah 5 that give us really a counterexample, an example of what not to do, Lord. We don't want to be like the nobles in Jerusalem who, who don't fear the Lord. We know, God, we've seen this morning in your word that if we don't fear you, that'll impact every area of our lives. It'll impact our relationships. It'll impact our workplaces. It'll impact this church. So God, I pray for this church right now that you are building here in the heart of Williamsburg. God, I pray that we would walk in an Acts 9.31 kind of way. That we would walk in the fear of the Lord and live in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. That we praise you this morning for the refuge of Christ. God, I thank you for giving me a refuge. Now I pray for the one of this one that doesn't yet have that refuge. They would seek in 
They'd say the need for it. They would talk to someone. They'd tap someone on the shoulder and say, I want to learn more about Jesus. And I need to learn more about Jesus. So, Father, I pray now, as we sing for a couple more minutes, God, that it would be an overflow of thanksgiving or the refuge-giving fearsome God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.